Property investing, buy to let or buy a fund instead? The risk of Chinese equity investing and why James Anderson of Scottish Mortgage has likened Theresa May to Hitler. I'm Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, and this is the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Show. Brits are obsessed with property, but as investors, what's the best way to access it, directly or via a fund? And from a chunk of the gherkin to a semi-detached house, just what can you get your hands on in the market? I'm joined in the studio today by Mark Homer, property investor and founder of Progressive Property, and Leonora Walters, personal finance editor at Investors Chronicle. So, Mark, what are the different ways that UK investors can get access to property in the UK? Primarily, the, the typical investment that, that people would make would be in a residential dwelling. So that might be a house or a flat. And the simplest way is probably a, a single let where they rent to a family with one AST, with one tenancy agreement. Uh, and they, they rent for typically six, 12 months. But typically, lots of those people stay a lot longer than that. People then move into more complex strategies, probably higher yielding, higher return strategies, where they might rent out by the room. That's typically called a a HMO property. And then they often move on to other types of investment. It might be doing serviced accommodation with Airbnb. I know you've you've covered that quite a lot. Uh, Or they might go into commercial property. But all of these are direct property investments, aren't they? So you could either go direct or what's the indirect route? Yeah, so the the indirect route is go to an IFA or some sort of fund um, and um, and invest in their their OIC or or you know some sort of investment fund. Then they take your money and they put it typically into big commercial buildings. Um, so a lot of the the big offices you see, the big retail you see, the shopping centres, uh, big sheds. So you might have distribution centres, Sainsbury's, Tesco's, or people like that. Um, and then you you may have just retail on the high street that, that that we know, but but often those types of investments are in very very big buildings because it's easier for a fund to put money to work that way. Okay, so it's, what's the difference here? Then you you touched on those different sectors. Might you get access to quite different kinds of property by going direct versus indirect, and and how does the kind of structure of what you actually own differ? Well, I think when you're investing directly, you would end up with um, a unit which is usually smaller. It's probably a little bit more nimble. Um, so you're able to to source the property yourself, um, probably look at, at market trends. You know, things might be a little bit slower at the moment because of Brexit and, and a few other things. So because of that, you, you're often able to get better deals. Um, and you're you're usually able to invest in something more local, have more control over it, uh, and have a more or direct sort of um, impact on on the outcome of the investment. I mean, but when when do you think a property fund is right for someone, and when is investing directly buying a home, buying a house, the best route in terms of an investment? I think a lot of it's about time. Um, it depends what sort of person you are and how involved you want to get. So if you're somebody who has some money and it isn't necessarily enough to fund a a property with, say, a mortgage, you may put it into a fund because you have kind of almost infinitely divisible kind of uh, lot sizes or or the amount of money you can put in. You know, you could put £5 in or you you could put £5 million into a lot of funds. So that could be an advantage to somebody. The time is is clearly much reduced. You you just do your research, invest in the fund, and probably don't do much else. Um, so that they can be very good from from that point of view. 
Um, clearly, the returns are not usually as good. Um, the control is nowhere near as good, and and usually they're 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 less liquid. I, I find. Although you say less liquid, um, surely much easier to get in and out of a fund than buy a house, it sell could, a house. It could be when the fund is is operating um, normally, you know, in in the normal you know sense of um, you know where, where, when the market is operating normally. Certainly, in recent times, post Brexit, a lot of the funds closed down, and you couldn't withdraw funds from those funds because they couldn't sell the buildings because they're such big buildings. It's a bit like an oil tanker. It can take a long time to sell a two two hundred million pound building, whereas if you've got a series of buy to let properties, I don't know, small houses or, or flats, you could usually sell one or two in the portfolio if you needed some cash, or probably do a refinance with a bank, um, which which will obviously get your money back quicker. You may have to take a bit of a hit on the price if you you need money quickly, but. Uh, you don't have that issue where the, the the kind of barriers come down. Yeah, and in fact, we'll we'll talk about that um, in in a little bit with with Leonora. Um, but before we go on to that, how much do you need to get started with each? You said um, property funds may be a good idea for someone without much money. What's the minimum yeah. investment size? Well, I think if you're going to fund your property purchase with a buy-to-let mortgage, you probably need about 20 to 25% of the purchase price of the property. Now, clearly in London, this is not going to be as easy. But if you go out to the provinces, you'll get a, a flat for 120000 130000 um, put a 20% deposit down, might be 25000 something like that, some stamp duty and some refurb. So often you're all in for about 30000 and you've got an investment which will yield 7% pre-finance. So that, that would be um, kind of a bare return. And then you'll end up getting capital growth and, and, and the income that the uh, the rent generates. And so is, is that generally the kind of return you think you could expect to get today on your initial investment over something like 10 years? And how would that compare to putting the same amount in, in a property fund, would you say? Yeah. Um, no, I think the overall return with investing directly in property is far, far higher than investing through a fund. And I'll explain why. If you, let's say you, you found a, a, little, a little flat that rented for, I don't know, 600 a month, and you were getting a, a 7% gross yield on that. There are clearly costs with that, and you might net out at, I don't know, 5 5.5%. If you've taken a mortgage out on that property, and you've only invested, say, 30000 in the you know in the investment, if that property then goes up 10% over you know a year, you're going to make 10% on the value of it. £130,000 property would be 13000 in in capital growth plus the income return. So to say, let's say the income return, just to make it simple, is 5000 on that net, and you've got a 13000 capital gain. That's an overall return of 18000 So 18000 is, is 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 quite a high return on that 30 that you originally invested. So, you know, you, you, you're actually over 50%. Now, I, I never target that. I over the long term, we've easily gone above twenty percent overall blended return between the capital and and the um, the income as well. But you, but there are some ifs there, aren't there? And there are some obviously big risks yeah. involved in buying property and involved in buy to let. Um, what do you think those risks are, and what are these the full kind of list of costs that you have to burden? Well, obviously, management and maintenance are clearly two 
big things that you you need to budget for but they're they're usually pretty predictable i'd say on a single let it's about 20 percent of the rent just goes in you know you need to pay a letting agent if you don't want to get too involved i'm I'm not great with tenants so uh, you know i let somebody else do that Uh, you're gonna have to insure it um you're gonna have to um make sure that um, if, if it's a flat, you know, you've got service charge and ground rent and things like that. So about 20% goes in, in costs like that. Clearly, interest rates are are one of the risks which you, you face. If, if rates went up a lot, then you'd, you'd still need to pay a mortgage. You might not have enough to pay the mortgage. Hasn't happened in, in, in recent years or since I've been in, in this zone. Uh, but you know, in the late uh, in the late eighties, ERM crisis. You know, interest rates went really, really high. So you can remove a lot of that risk by fixing the rate. Uh, there are some very good long term fixes out there at the moment. Uh, so that's good. Um, I'd say the the biggest change and the biggest risk in more recent times has been regulatory and tax changes. It's been relatively benign for a long period of time for us. Um, I came into this market in about 04, 03, and there hasn't really been that much that's changed. But um, certainly in the last 18 months, um, we've seen stamp duty go up quite a lot. Um, And the biggest change for people who hold investment portfolios or residential investment portfolios is that they're not able to offset all of the mortgage interest against the rent. Now this is a, a critical change and it is quite a big thing for investors. There is, you know, there, there are some ways around it and there are some ways in which you can still offset all that against your your tax bill but you need to move into a limited company in order to uh yeah, in order to um keep your tax bill down and then i mean let's talk about those recent changes to stamp duty because um all the headlines would tell you that that has been a big shift and it has made buy to let a less appealing investment what have the changes been and, and what's your take on that well the the, the main change was that there's three percent extra stamp duty on a purchase so that that you know if you're only buying 120 150 grand flat well that's not loads you probably negotiate part of that away when you're purchasing the property um and i think most people take that on the chin and see it as a capital you know a sunk cost and okay fine that's part of the investment but you know more punitive is is the inability to offset all of the mortgage interest which is your main cost against the rent that you're receiving and uh, george osborne introduced this as a I suppose he, he he was trying to appeal to uh, you know some of his electorate, um, you know, and and basically say, well, we're going to make it more attractive for homeowners to buy rather than these buy-to-let investors. So, um, basically, in 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 simple terms, around fifty percent of the mortgage interest is going to be offsetable for higher-rate taxpayers. Um, Lower-rate taxpayers probably won't see any change, but. The change here is that some of those people who are paying lower rate tax could be pushed into higher rate tax because of these changes. So it's it's a reasonably complicated equation and you need to sit down with your accountant to work out exactly what it's going to mean for you on a yearly basis. The way around it is to purchase your properties in a limited company because they're exempt from these new rules. So Okay, it sounds like that's something, like all of this is something which might bring with it quite a high level of legal costs. Um, you certainly need a good lawyer. You certainly need a good accountant. Um, 
for those who have already got properties in their own name, lots of them need to transfer those properties into a limited company to to avoid some of these changes. Um, if you've got a good accountant, he'll probably be able to claim what's called incorporation relief, Section 162 incorporation relief, which allows you to transfer a business free of capital gains tax into a limited company. Um, and there are there is a relief for stamp duty as well, um, as long as it's owned in a partnership or in joint names. It's, it's part of the Finance Act 03, um, Section 15, paragraphs 18 and 20. It's undeniable then there's a lot more complexity to, to buying directly than, than a fund where you definitely don't need to think about <laughs> the Finance Act. Um, but let's just stick with tax for one minute. And with tax-efficient wrappers. Now, obviously, you can hold funds and shares in ISA or a SIP. Can you hold residential property or any property in an ISA or a SIP too? Well, actually, I've never found a way of holding residential property or commercial property in an ISA, which I find quite annoying because I love putting my money in the ISA every year because it's this sort of... um, lockdown savings uh, zone which I never seem to take money out of because I don't want to lose the tax benefits so ISA I just think is out but uh, a SIP or a SAS is is certainly open to you Um, we have a SAS we invest in commercial property you're not allowed to buy residential property in the SIP or the SAS but um, you, you can buy commercial buildings or you can loan money from the SIP or the SAS to one of your other companies and then buy residential property within that company. That's allowed uh, up to a certain level and you have to charge interest and you get a good um, uh, pension trustee to, to run it for you. Uh, and, you know, that, that that's that's all allowable. So I, I tend to quite like that because you can really increase your returns in your, your SaaS over just investing in your, your normal kind of white bread kind of funds and, and, and investments okay so sip sas yes isa no yeah exactly pension yes um isa no okay um and then just more broadly um we've talked about buy to let and, and the impact that might have yeah. had on the market um what do you think the outlook is for residential property in the uk this year and what's what will be driving it i think this is very um much dependent on the area that you're talking about so i think if you're looking at the over a thousand pound a foot market which might be central london uh the nice you know the nicest areas i don't know mayfair kensington chelsea they're probably still falling uh, and they've been falling for a couple of years in terms of the capital values they went a bit far um the rents there are probably falling as well um I think the the stamp duty changes that came in last year didn't only affect buy to let, but also they got increased at properties over about nine hundred and thirty thousand. So on a ten million pound property now, you're paying over a million pounds in stamp duty. So that's really gummed that market up, and it's not moving. Lots of the agents aren't accepting it, and they're sort of in in denial because it doesn't help help their position. But that's the reality. You know, I talk to a lot of people on the ground. If you move out. You know, further out to the regions, and and certainly, um, while still within the M25, but a little bit further out of London, those areas are still growing because people are still moving out, and they're they're ch- still cheap relative to London. So, um, those commutable areas are, are are still seeing good growth. So, I expect in in areas like that, and probably the Midlands, you'll you'll probably see about five percent capital growth this year. Certainly, Ricks, who the the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, most of their surveyors believe that, that you'll see 
probably up to 5% capital growth over the next year. And in the north, lots of areas of the north are, are growing. Um, they're playing catch-up. You know, the London, the cycle started in 2010. Prices rose massively, and a lot of the rest of the country is still catching up. That ripple is going out as, as people move out, because moving up the ladder within London is, is so expensive. Okay. Leonora, when it comes to property funds, you've got the choice, haven't you, between open-end or closed-end yes. funds? What's the difference? Well, an open-ended property fund um, is not listed on the stock market. Um, it's similar to your unit trust and OICs. In most times, you should be able to take your money in and out easily. Obviously, there have been issues on two occasions, but only on two occasions. Investment trusts are like, they like shares, they're listed in the stock market. So arguably, there's more liquidity as long, you know, you can buy and sell your shares in them at any time. Now, obviously, the issue there is um, they're more correlated to equities. So it can be that even if the underlying properties are doing well, the um, the shares in your property investment trust might move in line with the equity market. So it won't, won't necessarily re- reflect property. It might reflect the equity market more. And the other issue is it can move to quite a wide discount and it can move to a premium. But I'd say the advantage of both these types of funds, which you touched on before, they both can be held in a tax-efficient ISA. And as some of these deliver quite attractive income, that's quite relevant. And, and you mentioned those those two occasions with property funds that made headlines last year, and, and Mark, you referred to this as well. Yeah, uh, when and during the financial crisis of um, 2008, a number of them um, gated as well. I mean, what what does that mean, and, and what happened, and how long were they gated? Well, in... Uh, in the recent gating, the one last year, it was, to be honest, it was very brief. They were all back open. Um, they only shut, I believe one may still be shut, but other than that, they just shut for a few months just to give themselves time to realise some assets. Um, but to be honest, they were all back open. Um, nobody lost any money. Um, you know, it's back to business as usual. And one of them, the Columbia Fred Needle Fund, has even uh, changed its pricing to reflect the fact that, you know, people are come eager to put their money in again. So to be honest, um, um, you know, it's no big shakes. And all right, people were gated in for a few months. The point about these funds is you should be investing in them with a long term time horizon. So if you suddenly needed to get your money out in the summer and you were panicking, to be honest, you probably shouldn't have been in them. You should have been in cash. Yeah, and and how were closed end property funds affected during that period? Um, they swung out to really quite wide discounts to net asset value, and that was quite marked because a lot of them were trading on. Um, premiums, some of them really quite high premiums because they do pay quite attractive dividends and have high yields. Um, that said, those premiums have, oh, sorry, those discounts have moved back in now. Maybe, maybe some of them on premiums again, maybe not as high as they were um, before um, the vote for Brexit. But just looking today, um, some of the more respected ones, let's say F&C Commercial Property is on a 3.7% premium. F&C UK Real Estate 3.4 Sun Life Investments Property Income 6.9. Um, I mean, they're probably lower than some of the premiums have been on in the past. Um, but I think it just reflects, all right, they had their blip. They swung out to their discounts when people were panicky. But, you know, now they're back more or less where they were. Okay, and, and just finally on property, 
Um, are are those discounts and premiums? Is that an advantage of of going down the down the investment trust route? Um, it can be and it can't be. I think if you you know if you like to you know sort of play bargains, get in a discount, get a premium going and out, then you know that can work to an advantage. If you're an investor who doesn't like volatility, who doesn't like uncertainty, and who wants to invest in something that reflects the property market more than it reflects the equity market, then no, it's a it's a big disadvantage. Okay, well, thanks, Mark. Thanks, Leonora. Now, it's Chinese New Year tomorrow, but should you celebrate by investing in China or will Trump be taking in his toll on that region? Emma Ajman, Personal Finance, is here with me in the studio now. Um, Emma, what are the fears with China? What are the reasons to be nervous? Well, there are a number. Firstly, slowing growth. The economy is still growing in China, but its rate last year was the slowest since 1990. And you remember at the start of 2016, there was all that worry about um, Chinese slowing growth. And that still is, is still a concern. Um, secondly, the amount of debt is within the Chinese economy is ballooning. So it's risen from 160% of GDP in 2005 to over 250% um, in 2015. And it's still rising. So that's obviously a huge worry. Another issue is demographics. I mean, one of the reasons that China's been such an attractive region for investors is the huge population, um, relatively young in the past. But now it's, its population is aging very quickly, somewhat as a result of the one-child policy that was there for a very long time. Um, so last year, the working population shrank for the first time. And that could also affect um, slowing growth. And finally, as you as you mentioned, Donald Trump is a huge, uh, you know, sort of threat to the Chinese economy. He's talked about wanting to slap um, imports from China with forty five percent tariffs, and that could have a huge effect on the country's exporters. Okay, I mean, how does that? How does the Trump uh, concern compare to the risk to other emerging markets? Um, I think that it is it is a concern, and some of the people we spoke to uh, felt that that China might be actually in a better position than some of the other emerging markets because China has actually been decreasing the amount of um, proportion of exporters in the the economy. So, so basically, it's not a bigger part of its economy as it used to be. And so it might not actually be as bad as as people might think. But then again, who knows, really? Okay, so what about a ground level? How are companies performing in China? Well, there's a real divide between state-owned enterprises, which make up a large part of the Chinese economy, um, and private companies. So private companies have generally been, been forming very strongly. So, for example, in the first half of 2015, profits are from state-owned companies were 2%, and that's compared to 18% for private companies, so much stronger growth there. Okay, and how does that compare to the performance of Chinese funds? Chinese funds um, last year did extremely well, especially considering the concerns that we had at the start of 2016. They returned on average 36.1%. So, yeah, strong growth last year. And what kind of time horizon do you think you need if you're investing in China? So the people we spoke to said that generally you should have a time horizon of at least um, 10 years because the market is so volatile it's better to to be invested for the long term. So, yeah, 10 years if you can handle it. Okay. Um, And what about the most appealing funds if you are getting in for 10 years? There are a number of funds that we looked at. So a couple of funds that have performed well over the last five years are Invesco, Perpetual, Hong Kong and China. 
and Investment Trust Fidelity China Special Situations. Um, both have teams that are based in China, so have the opportunity to meet companies regularly. And for the Invesco Fund, it returned 85.5% over the last five years. Um, it has an ongoing charge of 0.89%. For the Fidelity China Special Situations, um, it returned a much higher amount of 138% in five years, but it also has a higher ongoing charge of 2.22%. Okay, thanks. And for more on China, pick up the issue. Now, from driverless cars to artificial intelligence, Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the most exciting themes around today. So what is the trust buying and avoiding now? Leonora, how positive are James Anderson and Tom Slater, the managers of this trust, feeling about the outlook for global companies today? Well, they say they're quite um, um, pessimistic about it um, because apparently, according to um, James Anderson, the US and UK government are damaging the chances of companies with ambition and their policies might be detrimental to the types of innovative company he wants to invest in. How pessimistic he is, I'm not sure, because he seems to be quite enthusiastic about his underlying portfolio companies. So maybe it's um, maybe it's just a ploy to grab attention. <laughs> uh, and then, well, how have how have they been performing recently? The trust, and um, I guess the companies in his portfolio. Well. The trust, it's underperformed the benchmark over one year, but I don't think that's a way to judge it. This is an investment trust that invests in companies for the long term of long term potential. If you look at the investment trust three year and five year returns, they've easily outperformed the benchmark. That's MSCI World Index and um, they've outperformed most of their peers as well. Okay, and so what kind of companies are they investing in? Well, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, it's a global investment trust, but it does have a heavy sort of, um, let's say, flavour of technology companies because its managers, they really like um, some of the big technology companies and enlisted ones. And if you look at the company's top 10 holdings, you'll see names like Amazon and like Facebook. Okay, and and what are those kind of themes that they're that they're really buying into driverless cars or or robotics or or whatever, and and what kind of sectors will be particularly disrupted by those themes? Well, the automotive sector, as you indicated, they're backing Tesla, which is a U.S. company that's um, working on um, all sorts of innovations in the auto industry, like driverless cars, or uh, I believe ones that uh, focus on clean energy as well. Um, they've got, um, you know, they've got a bit of head start on some of their rivals, so um, they could disrupt that. And then Amazon as well. I mean, it, it seems like a, you know, quite a you know, everyday company that perhaps you get things off. But it's actually, you know, developing quite a lot of innovations in terms of, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence that could disrupt merchandising and traditional shopping. Um, and they quite like biotech things as well. They hold Illumina, which is um, revolutionising certain areas of medicine. So, you know, it's, it's a range of things. But let's say a strong tech and biotech flavour Okay, great. And we've talked about Scottish Mortgage in the past, haven't we, in relation to their um, fondness for private companies. Mm. Um, Is that still a big area for them and why? It is. I mean, they can invest up to 25% of their assets in this area. Now, they haven't got nearly that amount in. Um, I think they last reported in October last year, they had about 13% of assets 
in unlisted, but you know this could rise. Um, unlisted companies investing include things like Dropbox, which people might be familiar with, and then there's HelloFresh and Home24 as well. Okay, well, thanks. For more on that, pick up the magazine this week. And that's all we've got time for. So thanks to Mark, Leonora and Emma and have a good weekend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.